Well, today we continue our series from the Old Testament and have come to the book of Amos. Amos was one of the minor prophets. Now, you recall that after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was divided in two. There was the northern kingdom, referred to as Israel, and there was the southern kingdom, referred to as Judah. Amos was from the southern kingdom, but he prophesied to the northern kingdom. So he was from the south, but he prophesied in the north. As I read through the book, one of the things I was struck with or reminded of again is how God prepares the call for God's purposes. Warren Wiersbe wrote, God prepares us for what he's preparing for us. So the Lord then is going to call people to a specific ministry, and then he prepares those people for that ministry. I think one of the most prepared men in Scripture has to be Moses. Moses was born to a Hebrew family. He was raised in an Egyptian family. You recall that Pharaoh's daughter took him out of the water, took him home, raised him as her own child, educated him in Egypt. But then Moses went back to lead the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. So he was able to relate to both the Hebrews and the Egyptians because God had prepared him. Isaiah is believed by many to have been a member of the royal family. Therefore, he was able to relate to those people who were prominent people of his day. He was prepared. Amos was also prepared. In chapter 7, verse 14, the Scripture says, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore trees. So he was not a traditional type of prophet. He had not been educated as such. So he said, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. Matthew Henry wrote, he was a plain countryman, bred up and employed in country work and used to country fare. Now, according to Amos, he was a herdsman. I read a book not long ago. I think it was Outliers, but it uh, said that in this country, the north basically was settled by farmers, by people who had come from a farming background. The south was settled by herdsmen, people who had lived in the mountainous regions and so forth, and they were herdsmen taking care of animals. In the book, it said the characteristic of those in the south is that they are fiercely independent, they are very loyal, honor is important to them, and so forth. Now, when you look at Amos, he was a herdsman, but he also was a merchant because he said that he was a grower of sycamore figs, which means then that he probably sold his products to other people. So he was both a farmer and a herdsman, and God used that to prepare him for his ministry. Dr. Brian Harbour wrote, He saw firsthand the religious and social corruption of the people. This was also a part of his training. So when we look at Amos... He was not a typical prophet, educated as such. He did not grow up as such. He was a herdsman and a merchant. Now then, his message to the people is that we need to return 
to justice and to God. Take your Bibles, look with me in Amos chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. Now, as we look at this book, I want us to begin with the background. What was the condition of Israel at the time? Now, the Bible tells us that the people of Israel were a chosen people. You'll notice there in verse number 2, You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Now, truthfully, that is a confusing concept to many of us when the Bible says that God chose someone. Does that mean that God has favorites? Does it mean that He chooses some and does not choose others? I think that question is clarified somewhat if we understand what it means to be chosen. To be chosen by God does not mean that one has been chosen for the sake of blessing, but one has been chosen for the sake of responsibility. So when the Bible says then that God chose Israel, it was because of a responsibility He gave to them. The Scripture says in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so, this comes the responsibility, and so you shall be a blessing. So the Lord said to Abraham when he chose him, I have chosen you, I am going to make a great nation of you, I am going to bless you, and you are going to be a blessing to the world. Well, today we still debate this question, do we not? As to what it means to be the chosen of God, what it means to be the elect of God concerning salvation. Has God chosen some to be saved and not chosen others to be saved? And and the truth is, There are good, intelligent, godly people on both sides of that issue. And the fact is that we just don't agree in our interpretation. There are some who believe this and some believe that, and I have my belief. And you might not share my belief, but that's okay. I'm going to preach my belief, and you just keep your belief. I have no problem with it, because we might not agree on this issue concerning salvation. You see, here's what I believe. Concerning salvation, that when it speaks about someone being chosen or elected to salvation, it speaks about how we are saved, not who is saved. 
So my understanding, and I understand that there are others who disagree with that, they have a different interpretation of it, but it is my understanding that in the election of God, it is how one is saved, not who is saved. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. Now, as I understand that, this is speaking of being chosen in terms of how a person is saved. All right, now the Scripture says that we are saved by the foreknowledge of the Father. Ephesians 1.4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And my interpretation of that is that God predetermined that people would be saved in Him. That is the way that we are saved. So in the foreknowledge of God, in the determination of God, then He has chosen that only those people who are in Him are saved. That is the way of salvation. So the Father then has chosen us in Him to be saved. Then the Bible says the Holy Spirit draws us to Him And we are forgiven by Him as a result of His shed blood on Calvary. So I believe then that we are chosen for salvation in Him. But folks, even after you're saved, you're chosen. You are chosen for good works. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.10, For uh, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So then, Israel is chosen. They are chosen by God for a responsibility. But, here's the problem. They were, cho- they were the chosen of God, but they had become corrupted. In verse number 2b, he says, Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. They had been chosen by God, but had fallen into corruption because they failed to realize the vertical-horizontal relationship. That a vertical relationship, a relationship to God, affects my horizontal relationship, my relationship to my fellow man. A vertical relationship with God that is genuine is going to have an impact on my horizontal relationship to you. The Scripture says in 1 John 4.20, If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Do you see that? My vertical relationship, my relationship to God, impacts my horizontal relationship, my relationship to you. You see that in the Ten Commandments. There were two tablets. The first tablet of the Ten Commandments has to do with my vertical relationship. I'm to have no other gods. I'm to uh, keep the Sabbath holy and so forth. But, but that first tablet has to do with my vertical relationship, my relationship to God. The second tablet has to do with my relationship to my fellow man. They are connected. And so I'm not to steal, I'm not to kill, I'm not to bear false witness and those things. But there are two tablets in the Ten Commandments. The first tablet deals with my vertical relationship, followed by the second tablet, which deals with my horizontal relationship. You recall that a lawyer came to Jesus on one occasion and said, Jesus, what is the great commandment? What is the greatest commandment? 
And Jesus said in Matthew 22, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see the connection there? There's the vertical relationship, my relationship to God. There's the connection in my horizontal relationship. If I have a relationship to God, then it impacts my relationship to my fellow man. Rufus Jones, the Quaker scholar, summarized it this way. He said, it is the belief in the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, and the neighborhood of Philadelphia. Well, they didn't understand or they did not grasp or they did not realize that connection between the vertical relationship and the horizontal relationship. Secondly, they fail to realize that the words of worship must be confirmed by the works of one's life. That my words of worship must be confirmed by the way I live my life. Richard J. Foster wrote in Celebration of Discipline, if worship does not change us, it has not been worship. Do you believe that? Because, see, I do. I believe that we can come to church and sing and preach and teach and do all those things that we do without worshiping God. I think the key as to whether or not you have actually worshipped is what happens when you leave this place, not what you do while you're here. If we worship God, then it changes our lives. Well, because of the corruption, they were the chosen of God, they were corrupted, and therefore they were condemned. Now, God gave a warning there back in our text in verse number 2b. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Because of the corruption, there was a warning. There was condemnation. It reminds me, and I, I love the story. You've probably heard it, but I love it anyway. There was an area where there had been a flood, and, and the people were being rescued except for one religious man and so he kept climbing up, and he ended up on top of his house. And after a while, a couple of guys in a boat came by to rescue him, and he said, uh, No, he said, God is going to take care of me. I'm just trusting the Lord. So they went on their way, and then after a while, there was a helicopter came and threw down a rope and said, Grab hold of the rope, and we'll rescue you. And he'll say, No, he said, I'm trusting God. God is going to take care of me. Well, he drowned. And he's standing before the Lord, and he said, I thought that you were going to take care of me. And God said, I sent a boat and a helicopter. What else did you want me to do? Well, God had warned the people of Israel about their corruption. In chapter 4, verse number 6, he mentions there was a famine. In chapter 4, verse number 7, there was a drought. The Bible says, and furthermore, I withheld the rain from you for while there were still three months until harvest, in chapter 4, verse number 9, there was the plague of locusts. In chapter 4, verse number 10, there was death. The Bible says, I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses. So the Lord had warned them. He said to them, look, because of your corruption, because of your sin, you need to repent. You need to turn back. You know what their response was? Look with me over there real quick. In chapter 4, look at verse number 6b. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Verse number 8b. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Verse number 9b. 
Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Verse number 10b. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Verse number 11b. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. God had warned them about judgment. And he says, but you have not returned to me. You have not returned to me. So when we look at the condition of Israel at this time, they are the chosen of God, they are corrupted, therefore they are condemned. So the call then is to repentance. That's what Amos is saying. We have sinned against God, therefore we need to repent. And if you look in chapter 5, verse number 4, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me, that you may live. Folks, do you understand that a call to repentance is a call to God, a genuine call to God? He said, seek me that you may live. Now, if you look at chapter 5, verse number 5, he says, but do not resort to Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. That's what the word means, house of God. You perhaps know that Jeroboam set up the worship of golden calves there in Bethel. And so what I believe the message is from the prophet is that we are not to seek the house of God, but we are to seek the God of the house. You don't go to Bethel. He goes on there in verse number 5, and do not come to Gilgal. There are 40 references to Gilgal in the Bible. It was there that Joshua led the Hebrews across the Jordan River on dry land. It was there that Samuel anointed Saul as the king of Israel. So I think the message is don't seek the methods of God. Seek the God of the methods. And then in verse number 5, he continues, nor cross over to Beersheba. The word Beersheba means water of the covenant. In the New Testament especially, you know that water oftentimes symbolizes the word of God. So the message then is don't seek the Word of God, seek the God of the Word. You know, I believe in Bible study. I believe that it's extremely important for a believer. I don't think that you can grow apart from Bible study. But, folks, it is not an end to itself. It is a means to an end. It is not an end within itself. We don't just learn more. We don't just study more. We learn more and study more that we might become more like Jesus. So we don't seek the Word of God, we seek the God of the Word. He says, seek God. That's the call. Seek God. Why? To experience life. Look at chapter 5, verse 6. Seek the Lord that you may live. Verse 14. Seek good and not evil that you may live. You know, contrary to the world's claims, if you want to have life, then you're going to find it in, in a relationship to God. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. Albert Barnes wrote, the word abundantly denotes that which is not essential to life. Listen to that. The word abundantly denotes that which is not essential to life, but which is super added to make life happy. That's what Jesus said. We're not just talking about the things that you need. He said, I am talking about the things that enrich your life, that make your life good. That's what God wants to give to you. 
You know, if I didn't believe in heaven or hell, I'd still be a Christian. Now, I do believe in heaven and hell. I believe there is a heaven. I believe there is a hell. I do believe that. But if I didn't believe that, I'd still be a Christian. Because the life that I have in Christ, a Christian wife, you know, I, I tease Linda a lot. I wouldn't trade her for anybody. Not, I mean, not, not <laughs> I don't know if she should say that, but I wouldn't. I mean, she has so enriched my life, so blessed my life. Now, you're ne- you're never, you will never be sorry for marrying a Christian. You might be sorry for marrying a Baptist <laughs> or a Methodist or a Presbyterian, Episcopalian or something. You'll never be sorry for marrying a Christian. I am so grateful for my Christian wife, for my Christian home, that I grew up in a Christian home. My mother and father were Christians. Linda and I are Christians. Our children are Christians. Our grandchildren are Christians. So, I, I, you know, the way that it is is that As a believer, we have heaven on earth, and when we die, we have heaven in heaven. I mean, it's just glory to glory. It just keeps getting better. And so I would be a Christian. So the call to repentance, then, is a call to God, to worship God. And that's what Paul said in Romans chapter 12, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Man went to the doctor for his physical. The doctor examined him and said to him, You know, the best thing you can do is to give up carousing around and drinking. And the man said, Well, what's the next best thing? Well, when it comes to life, there is no next best thing. The best thing is a relationship to Jesus. If you want the abundant life, ladies and gentlemen, you'll find it in Jesus Christ. So, we seek Him. To experience life. And then there's the consequence of obedience. And I believe that, that, I believe that if we know God and, and that we will obey Him and trust Him and worship Him. You know, here's the, here's the struggle I oftentimes have. Is how much of my belief is the result of the way that I grew up or some cultural understanding, or whatever, rather than about God. If if we really know God, if we really know Jesus, I think that we would be thrilled to death to worship Him and be obedient to Him. Because, you see, the Bible tells us that God is righteous. He is righteous. We talk about His love a lot, but folks, you have to also understand that God is holy and He is righteous. Therefore, He has established a standard of judgment of righteousness. And so Amos said in chapter 7, verse 8, Then the Lord said, Behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. So God said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a plumb line here by which we are measured, by which you are measured. And that plumb line is righteousness. I'm not measured by what the Methodists do or don't do. I'm not measured by what you do or don't do. I am measured by the righteousness of God. And so he says that he has put a plumb line. Though he is righteous and just, he also offers us his grace because he is compassionate. In chapter 5, verse 15, he says, Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. He is compassionate and long-suffering in His dealing with us. And folks, He expects us to be compassionate as well. 
God is a just God, a righteous God. And He is a God of grace. And He expects us to be a God of compassion. Look at chapter 8, verse number 4. Hear this, you who trample the needy. Now, this is not the way we are to treat other people. Hear this, you who trample the needy, to do away with the humble of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath, that we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel larger and to cheat with this dishonest scales? That is not to be characteristic of the way that we live. That is not to be characteristic of the way we do business. God is compassionate, therefore He expects His children to be compassionate. God offers a future. Israel had been exiled, but they were not destroyed. In chapter 9, verse 8, he says, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. That was the promise of God. I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. Though they had been exiled, though they had suffered, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. And then God gives hope. That's one of the things as I read through this book that blessed my heart. As I, as I see the message from the prophet dealing with the sins of the people, they were the chosen of God, but they had been corrupted. And because of their corruption, there was condemnation. But then as I look, I see that God gives hope when we come to the end. He gives hope of, of a production. Look at chapter 9, verse number 13. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper, And the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. So the Lord and the prophet here is looking into the future and he says, God is going to bless you with production. He said, He is going to bless you with prosperity. Look at chapter 9, verse 14. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. So he is promising prosperity and then he promises permanence. Look at verse number 15 of chapter 9. I will also plant them on their land and they will not again be rooted out from their land which I have given them, says the Lord your God. That is the message of Amos the prophet. Here is a herdsman who was also a merchant. He was not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But he had the word of God. And he said to the people of God, you have been chosen. God has chosen you. But you are corrupt. And if you do not repent, then there is condemnation. But if you repent, he is saying then there is production, prosperity, and permanence. The message to me as I look at this is that we are like Israel in that we have sinned against God. I think we can examine our lives, and I'm not suggesting here that every one of you is away from the Lord and in rebellion against God. I'm not saying that because I don't know your heart. But I know that some of us are away from God, sin in our lives. But dear friend, here is the good news, and I just pray that you might accept it. God offers you pardon. He extends His grace and compassion if you will receive it. Someone has said the future is as bright as the promises of God. And the Bible says, the prophet says, seek the Lord that you may live. Do you want life eternally? Do you want life abundantly? Then you will find it in Jesus. Do you know Him? Our gracious Father, we come to a time of decision.
a time, Lord, when we consider your claim. We consider your provision. And, Lord, I pray today that the Holy Spirit will draw people to Jesus, that they might be forgiven, become children of God. Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit will move in our lives during this moment, during this invitation, in Christ's name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a hymn of invitation. Friend, if you're here without Jesus, would you commit your life to Him today? He'll give you a life that you could not dream of if you'll be obedient to Him. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. Stand with me, please, as we stand and sing. Staff will be here to receive you. You come and I'll greet you.